Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Show business for me, it felt like you're on the outside of a big room and you walk around the outside and keep pushing and keep pushing and somewhere there'll be a door that'll pop open. And when the door does pop open, go in and then don't lean on the wall. When, when, the, when the magic door opens, go in, keep moving forward and just keep taking work. Any work that, any work that, that you can, take it, stay in the room and just keep, keep going forward. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I hope you're doing great this week. I also want to thank all of you for supporting the show. And if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram, and I'll be glad to get back to you. And we got a great show for you today, part two of Kevin Rooney, along with special guests this episode, writers, producers, Ron Zimmerman and Jim Vallely. You're in for a treat. It's going to be very inspirational. And when I think of Kevin Rooney, I think of a guy who created an incredible career from the humblest beginnings. We're talking about a guy whose father lost his education money in the stock market, worked putting tar on roads and as a janitor in an elementary school, and lived in a room his dad built in the back of their barn. This is a guy that went on to win two Emmy Awards and work with some of the greatest people of my generation, including Billy Crystal, Jay Leno, Judd Apatow, and Dennis Miller. And ever since he knew he was funny and wanted to be funny, he set his sights on his goals, and that was to be somebody who made a mark in the business. And according to longtime bartender at the Improv, Eddie Burke, Kevin had the best Johnny Carson Tonight Show set he'd ever seen. And this is a guy who'd seen hundreds and hundreds of sets. But not only was Kevin a tremendous stand-up comic, but a great writer and actor. But the thing that strikes me most is that even though he had adversity in the beginning of his life, he worked through it and did great work enough to be recognized by incredibly great people. Not only that, networks took notice and he did countless sitcoms for Fox, ABC, and NBC. 
And not only that, he was recognized by giving a deal with Castle Rock, who produced Seinfeld while it was number one on the air on NBC. It's not a coincidence. This guy figured out a way to create great relationships, keep great relationships, continue those great relationships during the lows, the highs, and everywhere in between. But most importantly, one of the things that always strikes me about him is working with geniuses. And when you get a chance to work with the people he's worked with and do things with them that raise the bar, even though their bar is so high, you really have to take notice. And what strikes me about him is how he developed and created with Dennis Miller the comedy rants on Dennis Miller Live, which to me were some of the greatest pieces of scripted comedy that I've ever had a chance to see delivered on any stage. And so if you can figure out how to overcome the adversity that the world gave you, work hard, deliver great work, get recognized by some of the greatest people in your industry, for John, regardless of whether you get fired, you get hired, keep moving forward in a strong, positive way, doing that extraordinary work where you're recognized by everyone in your group, in your profession. Regardless of how many setbacks there are, you keep pushing, keep moving, and those relationships that you have stand the test of time and take your career to the next level. And I can guarantee you, if you figure out how to do that, you'll have the kind of career that Kevin Rooney has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. I want to know for our audience, in the 80s, in the boom, tell me three people who you had the greatest reverence and respect for besides Dennis Miller. Well, well, I didn't have, I thought Dennis was hilarious. We had a good time together, but Jay, I really respected, Leno. Uh, Robert Klein. I really respect Robert Klein. And, uh, well, I'd never really worked with him or knew him, but uh, Lenny Bruce was somebody I really, yeah. Got it. And then today, besides Chappelle, who are the comedians you see that even you, with sometimes a cynical eye, can look at and say, holy fuck, that guy is really doing something special? Or girl. Or girl. Well, um... Dana Gould, oh, yes. I think he's he's hilarious, a genius. Dave Chappelle, we just mentioned, who's fantastic. Jim Gaffigan, I've been watching all of Jim Gaffigan. Uh, we saw some other guys. I think Gary Goldman's really funny. Yeah, he's really. I remember, you know, remember I did a thing with him. Yes, we did something together when I yeah. represented him. Right, we wrote a little pilot with Gary. I always liked Gary, and thought he was funny, but he has really come. Uh, just gangbusters. His latest special there at the Big Depression, the Great Depression, really funny, great joke writing, and uh, a great point of view. So those are guys, and uh, I don't know who else. 
Kinison, I thought was hilarious, of course. But yeah, um, Dana, really funny. When you're working the clubs here in Hollywood, were there ever people who saw were going on before you and you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, how am I going to follow that guy? Yeah, there were. Uh, who were those people that you hated following? I've blotted them out. <laughs> <laughs> Robin, you don't want to follow Robin, of course. You don't want to follow big stars because the audience will have gotten what they wanted. You know, They get a big star, they go, I got what I wanted. I watched a big star and he's done, so you know, who else could there possibly be? But there were people who were very powerful acts that were hard to follow and uh, you know, people with points of view that were solid and... Uh, kind of uh, hard to, to, to get in behind. You know, if you, their point of view just was too strong to push off the stage when you got on. So there were people that thought, oh, man, that's going to be tough. But mo mostly, uh, you just wanted to get the audience before it got drained. Like, they didn't want to follow Charles Fleischer. He was doing 25 minutes of Mo leads. <laughs> Charles Fleischer was the voice of Roger Rabbit. Gilbert, you didn't want to follow at all. Gilbert no. Godfrey. Yeah. Kevin Meany, of course. Kevin Meany was hilarious. And his point of view, that's what I mean by the point of view, it was so strong and pleasant and also very nice. You know, there was a guy, uh, Mark Roberts. He created Mike and Molly. Yes. I was working with him in Seattle once. Uh, he was opening for me. And it was always hard for me because he's like a really pleasant uh, bald guy. Like a little, little bit, it was a little, at that time, it was a little bit chubby. And the audience loved him. He was a really pleasant guy. Then I come out, this angry, bitter, bald guy. So my bald, my bald jokes were already sold down. And I was, I was the awful guy. So, And he got to do all, he was first, so he got to do all the Seattle jokes, you know, all the stuff about the Seattle. And uh, it was really hard to follow him. Oh, Scheidner, you can follow Scheidner. Rich Scheidner. Rich Scheidner, I love Rich. He, he'd, ring him, he'd ring him out, really, he would. He would get the audience and just ring him by the neck. Do you I, mind? Uh, who? <laughs> oh, Al Jolson. Do you, mind, do you mind if I bring your, uh, your friends? No, here? come in, boys. Jim Bentley, Emmy winner for Arrested Development. Oh, yeah. And Ron Zimmerman. Both these guys work on action, which is a hilarious. Well, you, the yeah, this is the first show I ever got to get an executive producer. Yeah, you got your on. name on it. I've had my name on the same screen with you, which is like, you know, an amazing. But to me, that show was the proudest I've ever been to be involved because I didn't deserve to be an executive producer on that show. But they gave me the credit and I wasn't going to turn it down. No, man. And I was there with you guys and Joel Silver and Don Rio and the late Chris Thompson. Sure. And the late Ted Demi. And sure. And you guys, and it was just an incredible show. It's it to was this, to it this was, day. It's the greatest show I've day, ever worked on. It's my favorite. It's one, certainly one of my favorite shows that I ever worked on. Uh, and uh, and uh, Ron, what, what, do you have any um, thoughts on action? <laughs> I am most proud of the last episode of Action that Jimmy and I wrote because we were up the Weinstein's ass before and in 1999 we did the if you remember the last episode was about two horrible misogynists I mean it was it was the it was the Me Too wow. movement and I remember something and you tell me if this is the last episode where Jay's character dies 
and you already knew the show was canceled and it said time that wasn't of the, the last that wasn't the one time of the death. last episode was this one we changed the name to the rothstein brothers that's right and and there there the deal was the story was that that the writer of of uh, the the star of jay moore's character's movie had actually sold it to the rothstein brothers <laughs> before he sold it to Jay. So he had to buy it back, and the only way he could do it was to sacrifice his vice president, who was a child, a, a, a little girl child star. Eliana Douglas. <laughs> who rode the elephant in the movie. Yes, the elephant princess. Right. Yeah. That was the name of the show. So he had to give her to the wine. He had to give her for one night. <laughs> One night. And she came out of the house the next morning and her clothes were torn up and she, she had bite marks on her. I mean, it was, it was hideous. It was well, the way we wrote these guys. Remember, they, they, we, did, we did a restaurant scene. Who with, played them? Who were the actors that played Stu Pankin uh, played one of them. I can't remember the other one. Mostel's son. Oh, and Josh Mostel. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Josh Mostel and, and, uh, and Stu Pankin. Uh, and uh, Ron and I wrote a bit where they were eating uh, yeah, like, like, like like the palms and ribs and they were licking sauce off of each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you left some corn behind your ear. Let me go. That's delicious. That's funny. Yeah. But yeah, and and and, and uh, you know, I think, you know, I don't think it helped us in the industry that we wrote that particular episode because, these, you know, we said, oh, yeah, these guys are pigs. And that was the great thing about action because it was originally supposed to be on HBO. Right. That's and right, Joel Silver was based on Joel Silver. Yes. And Joel Silver, uh, for whatever reason, didn't want to do it at HBO. And we took it to Fox. I think it was Doug Herzog. Right. It was Doug Herzog. Yeah. And Doug Herzog, who, you know, hot off of this, he goes, yeah, I'll put this show on. And, uh, you know, I'd never been on a show that got, you know, reviews like this. I remember something that you might not know. Yeah. Doug Herzog told me that for the audience, just so they know, pilots are made and then in the middle of May, sometimes at the end of April, the network gets together with the president and the person above the president, a chairman of the network, and all the executives, and they watch the pilots and they decide which ones they're gonna pick up and which ones they aren't. And so they played the show Action, and Peter Chernin was in the room, and he says, "Uh, Doug, funny show, great, but we can't put that on the air. And Doug stood up and he slammed his hand on the table and he said, you brought me here to make shows like this. If you're not gonna let me put this on the air, then send me back to New York with my other job. And wow. he fought for it and he got the show on the air, but unfortunately it still got it canceled after 13 episodes. episodes. No, 13 episodes. Uh, we, you know, you know, I, Yes, but you know, but that was all Chris Thompson. Chris Thompson wrote that pilot, and that was you know, and, and to this day, I think it's probably the best pilot I've ever seen. I mean, you know, and 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 he got that out, and then you know, put together a writing staff with you know me and Ron and uh, Don Rio, who's amazing. We've all worked for Don. Yeah, he's the amazing Don Rio. Thank you, Don. Thank you for our houses, Don. We appreciate Thank it, Don. Don. Thank you. Say thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. I remember the first time that Don met Jay Moore, and Jay Moore was always a guy who had no filter. 
So Don's sitting in the director's chair. And for those of you who don't know Don Rio, it's like you're walking up to Gleason if Gleason were a executive producer only and not on, you know, it's right. just that kind of guy who it's like approaching a dog on a leash that's very, you know, he's just a strong willed person. I've and, always found him a wonderful person to be with at all times. I've But he's always wonderful to me. But Jay, with no filter, Jay Moore walks up to him and sits down on another director's chair and shakes his hand and says, great to meet you, Don. Listen, I just had to ask you something before I got started today. Um, you wrote Blossom. I mean, like, what were you thinking? You created Blossom. Mm -hmm. I mean, why are we here? But Blossom. Right. <laughs> and Don, this was a classic moment where Don just calmly said, Jay, and I'm paraphrasing, I live in a 17,000 square foot house in Hana that you can only get to by helicopter. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and he just got up and walked away. I'll, I'll never forget. My, my favorite line with Don as I was getting a little older, I said, Don, do you have any uh, advice about getting older? He said, bring money. <laughs> bring money. I give that to all the kids, too. You, know you that too, Jay. About bring Don, money. Jimmy, you'll uh, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong. We had a network guy who was uh, giving him notes on a show. It was the first time he ever gave notes on a show. It was he was new to the show, and he says to he says to Don after the run through, "I have some notes." And Don says, "Okay, but just remember, this is the first time I've ever heard you give notes. So everything from now on in your life, I'm going to judge on what you say right now." And the guy says, "I'm, I'm not now." I'll wait till later. Wasn't that with member Bob? <laughs> he just he just said, forget it. He, sc he scared him right off. Oh yeah. Okay, yeah. but remember what you say now. I remember for the rest of my. One of the things, Jim. I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but the first time I ever saw you was just in my apartment. I was watching the Tonight Show. And I saw you and your comedy team partner, Jonathan Schmock, Schmock and Valerie. Sure. And I saw a routine that I'll never forget to this day. And I always loved Clever. But what's fascinating is you guys did a routine that was clever, but was like a circus kind of thing when you did King Kong oh, washing so the dishes. King Kong so washing great. the dishes, yes. King Kong washing the dishes. <laughs> oh, thank you, yeah. You know, we, we, when John and I met at NYU, and, um, and uh, you know, we did some sketches together and got some laughs, and then I was living in Manhattan, and I went to a party at uh, Kenny Kramer's house. Kenny Kramer was... <laughs> the real... The real Kenny Kramer, Kramer, yeah. Kramer, yeah. Yeah, I, I lived in the same building as Kenny Kramer, and uh, Larry David lived across the hall from Kramer, and we had a party once at Kramer's house, and I and I met Rick Overton and, uh, and, and Overton and Sullivan, and they were in a comedy team, and they did this, you know, and they said, come on over to the improv and watch us. And they were amazing. They were absolutely amazing. I'd never seen anybody use mic work. I mean, this is like 1980, 81. You know, you know the way these guys did mic work, and uh, yeah, really, you know, those two guys inspired you know me and John to get back together again and to, and to do that stuff. And you know, we just you know back in those days, there were like a couple of clubs to work at. We worked at Catch a Rising Star and the Comic Strip and the Comedy Cellar. And you know, we just got lucky. We just got this. We went to this one, one, one club 
I think it was called Sweeney's downtown. Oh, yeah. yeah, we opened it up and we got an amazing review from uh, from the Daily News, and that it all of a sudden we were fl- we were out here. And but it's famous that Carol Leifer was seen twenty three times before Jim McCauley gave her the Tonight Show. How many times was Schmock and Valley seen before they got the Tonight Show? Well. Um, Okay, I'll brag. Twenty-one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, he had it perfect. I can't believe he screwed up. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I you know, it, it, Warren Littlefield saw us when he was a vice president. We auditioned for the first time for Brandon Tartikoff at the Comedy Store. Wait, you auditioned for the Tonight Show? For Not for the, the Tonight Show. For for an overall deal at NBC. And for those audience members that are too young to remember, Brandon Tartikoff was a brilliant 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 network president the youngest network president in history yeah and this is like in 1983 and we got there and i'd never been on been on stage at the comedy store before and uh they, they were seeing two acts uh and uh but Richard Pryor was in the audience. I mean, Richard Pryor was performing, and he was sitting in the audience, and there was a misunderstanding, and they went to uh, to Mitzi, and they said, is there any chance that, you know, Brandon Tartikoff is here with Warren Littlefield and Joel Thurm to see two acts? And, and Joel Thurm was a tremendous casting director yeah, at the time. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Taxi, and I think, I think maybe Cheers, mm-hmm. too. But, uh, uh, but, that, but Pryor was sitting in the back, right? So, we, you know, so the first act goes up, and uh, but prior, prior is it, but he has a split focus because the, it's a small room. We're in the original room, and Pryor's in the back. And then we go up and we do our bit, and we do okay. But you know, Pryor's in the back. Everyone wants Pryor to go on. You know, right. who are these you know guys? And Pryor goes up and uh, s- says, you know, you know what? He says right to Tartikoff. He goes, you know, nobody should have to follow those guys. And the other actor was Jim Carrey. It's all true. And we all got big deals the next day. And that's how we flew out to Los Angeles. Tell me where you first met this guy and to stay friends for this long in this business when so many things pry people apart. I want you to tell me where you first met and how you've formed this relationship that has stood the test of time when, let's face it, many people in your lives have gone by the wayside. Well, Kevin and me, were we were roommates in New York. We shared an apartment in New York. An apartment uh, that John Mendoza got us. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. We live we live below John Mendoza. And, yep. and, and John Mendoza, for the audience doesn't know, he was an incredible stand-up comedian. I remember he did a lot of edgy stuff. I remember he said this joke where he said, I went down on some woman, I put my head up, I looked like a mad dog. Yeah. I remember that line. He would do all this dirty stuff without saying the word. You can yeah. see all those jokes today. Yeah. Uh, John still yeah. does. <laughs> now he's, I think he's still opening for Howie Mandel, you mentioned. He, he opens for Howie Mandel all the time. So next time you see Howie, there's a good chance you're going to see John Mendoza too. We, so yeah, buy your Howie I, tickets now because he's not f- Fucking rich enough. Let's <laughs> <Rich enough. laughs> make another deal. Uh, Ron and They're I lived neighbors. in that great, that great place uh, in the Queens. Yep, yeah. it was a great spot. We had to walk. We would take the subway home late there, late at night there, and walk from the subway down to our apartment by the river. It was one mile. And you had to walk past that, that great bakery that Christopher Walken's family owned. The and, and then the Christopher Walken family dogs. were murdered. In. Right. His his parents were were murdered. 
they they ran this bakery and we get hot rolls. Yeah, hot rolls for the for the walk through the a warehouse district where there was pack of wild dogs. Packs of wild dogs <laughs> would, would chase you that liked rolls. And then at night, on the rooftops, yeah, cats would fight and fuck. Yeah, yeah. All night long. Right. And if you've never heard cats fight or fuck. Sounds like my marriage. There, yeah. And your name is Cats. So actually, yeah. It was cats yeah. fighting and fucking. Um, referring to you, but, you know. Uh, and, and the most horrifying noises. Right. And, and, and it would be all night long. And, and now... You know, 40 years later, I find out it was you and your wife. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the Walkins being murdered. <laughs> but, how <did> you, <laughs> but how did you become roommates? How did you know each other? Through, uh, we met through, through the guy where we were talking about before, Rich Scheidner. Rich Scheidner. Because we all started in Washington, D.C., a little club in D.C. Yeah. Brown Brookman's. It was a country western bar in, uh, south, in southwest, uh, was it southeast or southwest? It was, it was yeah, Washington D.C. Southeast, I think. They, they, uh, there used to be a, a a guy, a journalist that was that did a story about stand up, and they got hooked on stand up named Bill Tom, Bill Thomas. Yeah, and he had a great joke about. He said, "If you want to get to this club, all you got to do is drive." down Constitution Avenue until you're really afraid. <laughs> Park and go into the building right. and you're there. Crazy little club. But Rich was there. Ron now, Jim, there. you weren't there, were you? Louis, nope. Black, was, Louis Black was there. Yeah. TV Mulrooney, but Louis Black. Louis Black was the first one. Yeah. So we all started out there and knew each other from that. And then we, we reconvened, we sort of got together again in New York. I went and, to New York and found Rich. And, and I, uh, lived, I, I lived in Lewis, Lewis Black's apartment with him and Mark Lynn Baker. Wow, wow. Mark Lynn Baker. From... Uh, Perfect Strangers. Yeah. yeah. My favorite year, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and my yeah. favorite year. And they, they shared a place on, on St. Mark's Place down in the, in the East Village. And, uh, and they let me stay there. And I got, I got Mark hooked on X-Men comic books. Right. So he let me stay. They gave me a room there because, you know, I was like, well, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's not really hurting anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Jim, how did you meet Kevin for the first time? At the improv, right? Right. At yeah. The improv. Yeah. And in the door of the improv. Yeah. He was a doorman at the improv and, you know, and uh, he was, a, uh, you know, it, it takes a little while to get Kevin to be on your side. You know what I mean? You actually have to make him laugh, you know, and you have to go through a wall of, really? you know. Well, it's a, it's a little bit of a yeah. wall. Back then, I think I, I think that when the three of us were sitting at the table at the improv, I mean, you know, I forget, but somebody, I think Leno called us, oh, the viper's nest over there. We were mean, you know. We were mean guys. We were three mean guys. Three young mean guys, and we thought we were hot shit because we were 32 and making, you know, enough money to, you know, rent an apartment doing yeah. comedy so you know so the doorman at the improv and getting free hamburgers oh yeah cab fare. it's like being in the mob when you're making money yeah. doing comedy it's like I'm a made man you know oh, look at the suckers out there you know, <laughs> paying to see me oh those yeah. fools and then we all came out here <laughs> yeah I used to say I got into stand up 
as because I went into the witness protection program <laughs> and it was the one place where I would never be found. <laughs> That's funny. I don't know who wrote the joke on action, but Buddy Hackett goes off to kill the writer, Jared Paul, in the show action, and he has him up against a wall and he's going to kill him. And he lets him go. And Jared Paul says something like, well, what are you going to tell everybody? I mean, you're supposed to kill me. He says, I'm going to tell you that you, I wish I could do the buddy hacking. And I'm going to tell everybody else that you signed with the William Morris Agency. Right. And then they'll know you will never be seen again. I will yeah. guarantee you that is a Don Rio joke right down the line. That is yeah. Don Rio. My favorite buddy hacking joke that I just kind of remembered I wrote, uh, we gave, he had, he had a big long monologue you know was to make Jay feel good about himself or something and uh, he tells his story about during the war uh, Korean War he you know was in an accident he had one of his his balls were shot off he only had one one testicle and uh, as he went through life he you know you know ups and downs he goes I could have said this is a terrible thing that happened to me but when I look down I like to think of that nutsack as half full <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a good one and to have and be able because that was like the last thing buddy hackett really did yeah. and to have to have like you know a but to have buddy hackett do a gag because you know he's just you know he he was an icon you know i was yeah. like you know in 1953 he was making 175,000 a week in vegas unbelievable wow. unbelievable with, the, with the, the money that these guys made and you you know you're, you're thinking you know now but no no and it really stopped in vegas around the 70s and he did the first two hbo specials buddy did i believe in 75 and 76 hated that old prick <laughs> hated his guts didn't write one line for him out of 13 episodes i wouldn't write a joke for him if you held a gun to my head and chris thompson the late chris thompson did once hold a gun to my head and i still didn't write a joke for buddy hackett because he pulled a gun on me when i was a young stand-up and me, Bill Maher, and Jack Cohen, who became the head writer of the, On the Tonight, Tonight Show, Show with Jay Leno. For Jay. And we went and saw Buddy Hackett's act. And there's a tradition that if you send a note, your comic, a young comic, the older comic, has to have you invite you to their dressing room after the show. Hmm. So the three of us go to the dressing room after the show and he opens the door and he's wearing a robe and a Speedo. And the robe <laughs> is open and he's got a bottle of vodka in one hand and a gun in the other hand. <laughs> and he's obviously shit-faced drunk and we, the three of us sit on a couch in his dressing room and he starts telling us how Lenny Bruce stole every piece of material he ever did. <laughs> and I said, well, do one. And, and, and he, he goes, well, what, are, what are you talking about? Do one. I said, well, you're saying, I, I go, the, 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 the Palladium bit. Right, yeah. I go, that might be his most, Lenny Bruce's most famous piece of material. I go, yeah. do a little bit of that. Because I, I, I have a tough time believing that Lenny Bruce stole <laughs> every piece. Of, I mean, I just watched your act. Yeah. And it's hard for me to, I was a loud mouth little asshole too. <laughs> So, and I said, it's hard for me to believe that, 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 and this guy had a gun in his hand. And vodka. I said, I don't believe that you wrote, that Buddy, that Lenny Bruce stole all his material from you. Yeah. Do one bit. 
and he starts to do the play, and I remember that one. <laughs> and, and I go, you don't remember it because you didn't write it. It wasn't yours. It was Lenny Bruce's, and you're a right. fucking liar. <laughs> and he, he goes, get up. And he points the gun at the three of us, and he has the bodyguards come in, and they grab us. And this is and Bill Maher, who even before he was famous, acted like a famous guy. Right. He always acted like he was really yeah. famous, and he couldn't believe it because they threw us in the alley behind the <laughs> club in Atlantic City. They literally physically threw us into an alley. Wow. Well, thank God he didn't remember you on action. Yeah, you're lucky that your nutsack isn't half full. You know what I'm saying? That's a callback. <laughs> now, before I let you two go and I finish the interview with him. Finish it with him, yeah. I wanna, we just, we no, just want to publicly say how much we love Kevin Rooney. Oh, That's oh, all. Man. That's all. Kevin Rooney is our... He's our light. He's the wind that we... That, 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 that we... Yeah. But, but this is the last question okay. I want to ask you guys because this is, to me, the greatest challenge. And I asked Adam McKay this question when he did the movie that he won the Academy Award with and now I'm forgetting the name of the movie. Vice. The Big Short. And he's got that role but he knows so many great people. There's so many great comedian actors who would want that role. Right. From Will Ferrell to Sandler who can do dramatic yeah, acting. Yeah. Jim Carrey can do sure. dramatic acting. Carell can do it but he only can choose one. Right. People see the movie, they're like, well, I think I could have done that. Mm -hmm. So when you guys all have gotten... Every time I see Ben Blue in a movie, I think that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We are aging ourselves big time tonight, folks. There's a reference. Aristotle's nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> but you guys have worked on separate jobs and brought each other into jobs. Sure. But there's times when you work on a show... And you don't bring Jim in or you don't bring Ron in. And do you ever feel like, oh, man, they're going to say, hey, man, if you'd have brought me in, I could have made an extra hundred or two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars. You didn't bring me in. You brought that guy in you don't really like. And I feel shitty about it. Were there ever times when you questioned each other's decisions on bringing people in and not bringing people in? Well, I was never in a position to bring people in. You had influence. You, had, you, you know, had you know, influence. You know, influence, but at the end of the day, there's always, you know, like, you, you know, bring me in. I brought, I brought, I brought him you in, and then television writing. When I knew other people, like you're saying, other people who were on shows that never did that, never reached out to me and said, "Give this guy." I said, "Here's a funny guy. You want to bring him into the show?" Or did Jimmy did that? Jimmy brought me in and got me a writing career. Well, in, 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 Tommy. Oh, Tommy, I love him. You made me look good. Uh, the and early both of you guys yeah, actually gave Ron, me a job. Ron, 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 Ron got me my first writing job on Charles in Charge. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> we still get checks for eight six cents. But that's what I'm but that's what I'm saying. There are jobs that you guys have had influence where you hired each other, but there's also jobs where you didn't hire each other and you hired somebody else. Did right. that create any animosity at all or none? Um no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm full of it. I'm it's pouring out of every 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 everything in me is bitter and furious about about this. What a that, that question to me 99% of my career was writing shit for with shit writers on shit shows yeah. for shit money. Oh wow. So you know, my first like three jobs 
I made, I made, you know, a couple of million dollars and then never again. And I, cause I always pissed somebody off cause I, I had a, and still do. I have a big fucking mouth <laughs> and I shoot it off. You know, I just can't, you know, be cool when, when it's time to just shut the fuck up. <laughs> never could. I had a kid. <laughs> I, I still do hi Tannis that's my daughter I just uh, I did not laugh enough at other people's jokes oh that's the other you know in writing rooms I, would, I think I was like sit there and Brad Garrett said to me well, Kev you're hard to read I don't know what you, whether you like anything or not I guess I have a I guess I have a default sour face or something but if it's not really funny I didn't laugh I didn't learn how to didn't learn how to laugh at stuff that was bad I have the best fake I laugh in the business. <laughs> I do. Emily has the greatest fake laugh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Kevin and I have no fake laughs. No fake laugh. I didn't ever learn how to do Me that. Me neither. Tell me one holy shit, I can't believe that this happened story in your career for the audience. I, I I don't want to you know you know be the guy because I, I I really talk about it but uh, when when uh, I won an Emmy for for Arrested Development because that year it was for best script and we were going up to, to two of the other writers on our show got, also got nominated uh, Barbie Adler and uh, Brad Copeland and uh, so there's there were three from our show and the other shows that got nominated were the pilot for. Um, Desperate Housewives, which was great, and Mark Cherry, guy who I'd worked with, and um, uh, whoever wrote the, uh, uh, probably Phil, uh, for the last episode of uh, Everyone Loves Raymond. And I thought that, you know, there's no way I was right. I would get. So that was a holy shit moment for me because, you know, I, 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 I've never gone into this, you know, business thinking I would get anything. You know, I, I remember once, you know, I was looking for a job and I had done Golden Girls and a couple of, yeah, I had some good credits under my belt, but uh, um, I, I remember saying to my agent, uh, well, what about Frazier? And without even meeting, missing a beat, you know, my agent said, oh, you're not smart enough for Frazier. <laughs> you know, like they just know. It's like, I, go, I, I can fucking carry a wine guide with me too and you know, throw those words in there. It's just a formula. Uh, but um, So I never really expected anything. I never expected any sort of recognition. I had given it up longer ago as 50 when I when, when, when I was you know you know you know Kevin got his you know when he was young and you know <laughs> so, you know well you were younger you were like 41 42 yeah. yeah so you know you just, you just at one point you kind of give up that go so that was a very pleasant surprise and um that's the only time I've ever talked about that so that was my holy shit moment thank awesome. you Mitch Hurwitz okay yeah. Mitch Hurwitz the showrunner of yes. the rest of the development Ron what's your greatest holy shit moment story in your life in this business <laughs> all of it you know, just the whole thing has been just one holy shit after another, you know? It's just, it's either so bad or so good that it's all holy shit. I mean, sitting here is a holy shit moment because I think after, with along with Larry David, Kevin and Jimmy are, are two of, of the real actual comedy geniuses of the last four decades so this interview aside 
Yeah. <laughs> so what happened to us? <laughs> but but you know so so even even this is 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 oh, still yeah. a holy shit. Moment. After that, I'd like to change my holy shit moment to what Ron just said. Yeah, that's my holy shit moment. Finish talking to Rooney. We love you, Rooney. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you for letting for us barge in. I you can take as much it. as you want yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. All right. I want to go way, way, way back. Take me back to where you grew up, what your father and your mom were like, what the socioeconomic <laughs> dynamic was like, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? Okay. Well, so lower middle class kid, father was an editor, and my mother was just a disgruntled housewife. <laughs> and uh, lived out in a little like a farming town in Massachusetts. What town in Massachusetts? It's called West Newbury. And it's up on the uh, north shore of, of, of uh, Massachusetts, near the border of New Hampshire. Near Plum Island? Yeah, I love Plum Island. I used to walk on Plum Island all the time. Beautiful place to go over and uh, make love in the dunes and get bitten by greenhead flies. <laughs> 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 And uh, and I there was a kind of a isolated kind of life though because I was a, I lived in a little farm town about maybe four thousand people so had my friend across the street but there was nothing you couldn't walk to like the magazine shops or store or anything like that so I kind of led a little isolated life as a kid but uh, uh, had no money, went to college a couple of places, went to like four or five different colleges, the service, and, you know, whatnot. But my father was always cracking jokes and tried to be funny. And he was a clever guy and a good painter. So I learned, I think I got a lot of my uh, sense of humor from the old man, but, uh, and he turned me on to good literature. He was an editor, like I said, so there's a lot of books around the house all the time. But we didn't have, they did not like listen, like a lot of my friends, they got introduced to stand-up because their parents had comedy albums like uh, Bob Newhart or something like the that. The Button Down Mind, which was my right. first uh, comedy album that I loved. Right, but they didn't have that. So I, I, would, I think I saw a couple of guys on, a, on The Tonight Show that my father was laughing at. I can't remember who, but they were funny guys on The Tonight Show. But it never, never occurred to me that that would be a job or that was something somebody did. It didn't, didn't occur to me that there was stand-up was a thing that people did or that it was an art form of some kind. Never knew that. So I didn't really get into that until uh, I was out of the service and I was working in Washington, D.C. and I was you know, trying to 
I was cracking jokes a little bit in my job, and the people dared me to go do an open mic night there. That's where I met Rich Scheidner and Ron, and uh, that was at Dale Bookman's down there at the uh, in Anacostia. How'd you do that first time up? The first time up, I did okay. I got a couple of laughs, and I think I always thought if I had not gotten laughs the first time I got up, I never would have done it again, because my impression was that the audience was a monolith that the people you were actually talking to were just representative of the entire audience and that, you know, that, that, that if they didn't like you, then no one would like you. So I got a couple of laughs, so I, so I got bit by the bug of getting, the la getting a couple of laughs, I kept going, but if that first night had failed ter terribly, I would never have tried it, and I would never have tried it again. That was in El Brookman's, and uh, that was sort of fun to get a couple of laughs, and then when you could go to New York, when I went to New York, and found Rich at the Improv there, and got a job as the doorman there. I started. Were doing, you a doorman when Chris Albrecht was a doorman? No, Chris Albrecht had gone, and uh, this was after like Jerry Seinfeld was still around a little bit, but then he left quickly too. Uh, so it was kind of I was I guess it was 1981 or so, 1980. So I started doing late night uh, uh, when the a little little four or five minutes set late night there, really late. To like crowds of you know four or five crowds, five or six people. This is the club at Forty Fourth and Ninth. Yeah, and then there the comedy boom kind of happened, and I got caught up in that, where you could make like I say, you could make fifty or a hundred bucks, you know, in some little club somewhere. So that was enough for me. All I needed was fifty or a hundred bucks a couple of times. What kind of place were you living in in New York? Well, we at that point it was sharing a. Uh, an apartment up, up on 125th Street in Claremont with actual dirt coming out of holes in the wall downstairs was down in the basement, you know. Crappy little place and, you know, trying to just cage money to get enough to buy a chicken to split with my roommate who was an old friend of mine from school. So I was living hand to mouth up there. Remember my father came to visit once. He was so appalled at the uh, condition of my clothes in the apartment where I was living. He bought me a pair of wingtips like they were magic shoes that if I could wear wingtips <laughs> like he wore, lace up wingtips, I could fly over all the dirt and poverty there and be safe like a magic carpet. But uh, yeah, you live in hand to mouth, but I was happy with it because I made enough. I just live within my means. You know, whatever you made in cab fare and little pickup gigs in New York, you could patch together a little place to live and enough food and then of course in the clubs you if you did a set you would get a hamburger or something like so kind of keep it together like that it was very 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 hand to mouth but i was happy with it because i was not doing what i didn't want to do which was get up every day and put on a tie and do, do some kind of crappy job i didn't want to do i really kind of uh i think got into stand-up because i was avoiding like an amoeba i was, I was just moving away from heat <laughs> and how many years of that kind of existence and living before you got your first break? Well, let's see. Uh, I think that was 1980. And then creeping along uh, from one gig to the next and writing some jokes. Then at 85, I got The Tonight Show. So that broke things a little bit. Could make more money and better gigs on the road and put together enough money over the year to have a decent place to live. Got married for the first time in '83, and uh, I think it was about, I guess uh, four or five years, which is pretty good, actually. Looking back on it, I think you know, five under you know under under, under six years is pretty decent. Could you tell our audience the pressure of a stand-up comic doing the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson at that time, and and knowing that 
only six people had ever gone to the couch after their first set on the tonight show and knowing that he had those symbols he would give you the okay sign and that meant you were going to come back but if he didn't do that then you weren't coming back so you didn't know yeah uh, I didn't know that only six people had gone to the couch, and that was not my goal. I just wanted to get some laughs on the Tonight Show. That was that was that was uh, a uh, pressurized situation, but I had I worked on it. I worked on the set. I knew what I was going to do. But it was funny. They knew they the people at the Tonight Show knew how much pressure you were under because I went out to my you know they show you they sh- they pull the curtain apart and they show you here's the spot you want to go to when you get introduced. Go out there and stand on that spot. And then you'll come back through the curtain after the after your set's over, and he and Car- Carson gives you the thumbs up or not. You come back through the curtain. So I went out, I hit my spot, I did the set, it worked okay. I came back through the curtain, and the guy, the stagehand, was there to catch me because he came out of the lights, you know, into the dark behind the curtains, and I kind of fell forward a little bit at, at, because the the uh, what do you call it? The pressure's over, and the uh, release is so intense when you come through the curtain into the dark you're like oh my god you fall forward a little bit the guy was there to catch me because everybody does that i guess they come through the curtain they know you're going to be so relieved you have a little bit of you you relax into the darkness a little bit you could trip and fall so they're there to catch you coming through because everybody comes out of there it's like being shot out of a gun you know And the material, did it all work exactly the way you wanted it to? Or did some stuff, you know how sometimes you're doing a show, uh, your first taping, and because you're doing shows in the clubs for 17 people, 30 people, 100 people. But on a television show, you could deliver a line and they could start applauding for 15 seconds and you had a tag after that line. You have to decide whether to do the tag or not. None of my material was so good that it screwed itself up. <laughs> um, but the jokes did work. One joke in particular, I, 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 for anybody out there, I'm bald. So one of the jokes was to the audience, does this look familiar to you? And I turned my back to the audience and I pretended to be an old man driving a car, <laughs> which I reach up and adjust the rearview mirror and then wave them around, you know? <laughs> And I realized when I did the joke, I waved them around, I got a laugh. And I realized if I wave them around again, I got another laugh. So I could just start waving people around. And as many times I laugh as I wanted, I just keep waving my arm around, like, come around, come around, come around. Had to resist miming getting out of the car and, you know, doing all kinds of, all kinds of crazy shit. But uh, that joke worked well. None of the jokes failed to the point that I stumbled over them. Because, you know, a lot of times if a joke doesn't work and you expect it to, it's like tripping over a log in the dark. <laughs> But none of that happened. So that was a good show to do. And Carson gave me the uh, thumbs up. And a friend of mine, Martin Olson, was there in the audience. Just to let you know, Martin Olson was the (laughs) piano player Mm -hmm. at the Ding Ho Comedy Club in Inman Square, Cambridge, where comedy was almost probably born there with Barry Crimmins and Lenny Clark and Stephen Wright. And right. he'd play the piano, Don Gavin, Steve Don Sweeney. Gavin. Yep. And so, and he came out here and he was a writer out here, still is, but he wrote for, didn't he write for Children's Animation and shows he did like that? Yeah, Ren and, I can't remember the, was it Ren and Stippy? I can't remember, but yeah, he's a wonderful guy, really funny guy. And he has a distinctive laugh, a big bark, ah, ah, a big, big laugh. So at the end of the show, 
the Carson appearance. Carson said, and I also want to thank uh, Kevin Bruni. And Marston goes, yeah. You can hear him in the audience. I got tape of it, you know. You can hear him going, yeah. And Carson, and Carson looks at him and goes, yes, yes, we'll have him back. So he awesome. kind of, he kind of, that was Martin really kind of kicked that off. Tell our audience the first time you bombed miserably or where you perceived that you did not do well on a television set. And the first you time I really bombed miserably, I must have been at dinner at my parents' house. <laughs> I think my father hit me. <laughs> no, he did not. Uh, miserable bombing. I've had some terrible, terrible bombs. I had one up outside of San Francisco that was so bad, I ended up kicking the audience out of the club. <laughs> <laughs> I walked down into the audience and said, get the fuck, you're the worst people I've ever met. Get the fuck out of here. And I, I thought it was going to get beaten up, but they actually got up and left. <laughs> Except for one woman, one woman who'd been heckling me who stayed behind and said, we, we paid to come in. I said, hey, I, I balled up a 20 and threw it at her and said, here, take this and leave. But I had a terrible, terrible set there. Following, like we were talking earlier, following an act I should not have had to follow. It was, it was very filthy and stupid and they ruined the audience. And I was trying to get them back, and the guy in the back says to me, he's got a big straw cowboy hat on. He goes, he says to me, hey, uh, hey, you a Jew? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not. So what if I was? He goes, we put you in an oven. <laughs> and the audience laughs. I said, you know, you people are the lowest fucking people I've ever talked to. Get the fuck out of here. But I was bombing terribly. I felt better once they once they left. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was a bad, bad bomb. But uh, yeah, I bombed a lot. Um, not uh, often because you know I did okay. As a, in my career over over time, it was okay. But I bombed enough to know what it felt like. And it felt like and how difficult it is to uh, maintain your composure when you're bombing. You know, you can't get through. You can't find a way through. You can't find a subject that they're going to enjoy. You keep moving around and burning up jokes here and burning up jokes there and looking at the clock and going, Jesus, you know. I'm going through fuel like uh, this is not good. <laughs> I am going to be on the way down to the planet's surface. Very Do you remember the moment that you said to yourself, I'm never working a day job ever again? Was that the Tonight Show set or was it something else? No, that was mowing Mr. Popowell's lawn. <laughs> <laughs> when I was nine. <laughs> I think I did I not, not day job. I just said I'm not working. <laughs> no, but you were doing a lot of shitty jobs. You were a bartender. Yep. You did so many different crazy doorman. Yeah. So when did you say I'm not doing a day job anymore? What happened? As soon as I saw the uh, light there with the uh, oh, this is good. I can I can make twenty five dollars, fifty dollars a week doing stand up. I'm never working a day job again. And I had to make sure I didn't get. Uh, bogged down in responsibilities that would make me work a day job again you know i knew my old from my old man that getting bogged down in uh familiar responsibilities would make you it would make it impossible for you in good conscience to pursue uh a dream like uh making money doing something f like telling jokes to people or art or anything like that so i think that that must have been in 1980 one or two when the comedy boom was kind of happening. I got the door job at the Improv and I started doing sets at the Improv and started getting offers to do little clubs out in New Jersey. 
you know, they, what I call them trunk gigs, where because they, they, the guy would have a, his entire club in the trunk of his car. You know, he'd drive out to the gig with you, and he'd open the trunk, and he'd have a little sheet that said the Jim Balazzo show or something like that, and, and he'd put it up where he'd have a big inflatable banana he'd hang on the wall and, <laughs> and call it a comedy club. And you'd do your gig, and then he'd pack the club back, back his club back into his trunk, deflate his banana, and throw it back in the back seat. <laughs> and you'd go back to New York. I think that's when I thought, I don't have to do a day job anymore. That can just skirt along in here and see what happens here. I'll, I'll try this and see what happens. Six degrees of separation. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Tell me what comes to mind. Could be a sentence, could be a story, could be anything. All right. Judd Apatow. A wonderful guy. A very uh, accomplished comic and director, of course. And I knew him when he was young. And uh, to watch his growth over time has been great. And he's always been very, uh, I'll say, complimentary to me and very nice. And so I, I really like Judd a lot. A sweet guy, talented guy. But he did mention me in uh, Funny People that he wanted the relationship between uh, Seth Rogen and Adam Sandler to reflect kind of his relationship he had with me. We never had that kind of, it wasn't that deep, but I, I am really flattered that he thinks. Uh, that was the kind of relationship we had. Jay Leno. Uh, wonderful guy. Uh, so generous, Jay, and uh, supportive and hilarious. I mean, I watched him early on when I first met him do two and a half, three hour sets, just killing the audience. He would stop to talk to them make them laugh just conversationally with them, just as a break to give them a breath because the material was so powerful. And he really paints great word pictures. That was when I realized, you know, he puts together these word pictures that are jokes that are just funny to see in your mind. Damon Wayans. A really good guy, and he brought me along. And, and from I knew him when he was uh, just starting out at the Improv in New York. Had a, had, had a good relationship with him there. And then he was uh, nice enough to bring me on to my wife and kids and kept me there for years. And I just came back from the apartment. He got me in France. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, Damon. Thank you, Don. Bill Maher. Really sharp guy, hardworking guy, funny, great political point of view. I think his uh, work ethic is really admirable. It was fun working with him. He was pretty... Uh, complimentary and uh, a good laugh you know he really gives it up on the laughs and he is he's happy when you're he's, he's complimentary and he's great he's appreciative of you if you're giving him good material last name Johnny Carson oh Carson was a, a unique one-of-a-kind guy who he just really set the gold standard there for you know, the thing about Carson was, I think his taste, his personal taste, informed his show to the point that the audience always knew anything on that show was going to be uh, worthy, that Carson, if Carson liked it, it would be on the show. And there wouldn't be anything on the show that Carson didn't like. So he had a 
great way of marshalling his show, making his show something that he was proud of and the audience could rely on it. So it was a, it was like a, I guess it was what they call it now, they call it a brand or something, but he was a very sharp, very sharp guy and obviously uh, influenced a lot of comedy. Influenced a lot of comedy. You know, Bill, Bill Maher used to say, when he was a kid, he would watch The Tonight Show and do the jokes the next day at school. He would write them down and, you know, perform them. So I think you can, you can look at Bill and see that a lot of his body posture, a lot of his, with the hands, the way he, way he works with his hands, clap the hands together at the end of a joke, the way he gestured and stand. He, they're also, both of Johnny and Bill are both kind of diminutive guys. And they posture, his, his, his body language is very much like Johnny's. I think when he was a kid, he was watching that a lot, obviously. And he imprinted it. And he, uh, he took it. He didn't take it, he just imprinted it. And it became a, so Carson's style, I think, was very, uh, he influenced, he's very influential. So, yeah, and I like it, he was nice. I didn't speak to him much. The couple of, the few times that I did the show, I did the show five times. The last time I finally went over to sit, you know, at the desk, and I had done a joke about my father, and he said something about your father is my age. I said there was something. I didn't miss the opportunity. I, I was the audience clapped for, for for Johnny. I missed the opportunity to make a comeback to him about it is weird. You and your father, you and my father are the same age, and I look older than you. <laughs> but I didn't get it out. <laughs> but he was a, he was a nice guy. He was pleasant. Your proudest moment in show business? Um, winning the Emmy was a lot of fun. For Politically Incorrect? For, no, for Dennis Miller Live. Did you win one for Politically Incorrect and one no, for Dennis No, no, Bill has not, that have not, that has, the show has not won, I don't think. So you won the two Emmys for? Dennis Miller Live, yeah. And that show got on a run because I left, uh, but they won another two or three after that, so. It was a. It was just a. It was a good show, and I think it was in a groove there with the Academy. You know, some people. Was, I think the shows get into a groove and they get voted in every year, like Frasier was just all all the time. Were you involved with creating the rants or something around oh, the rants? Yeah. Yep. Could you talk about that? Well, we went to Las Vegas to write. Uh, this, the writing staff, Dennis and the whole staff, went to Vegas one week to write, get ready for the show. And I wrote a long, what was kind of a, supposed to be a joke, kind of. But it was a long observation about something that blew up into the rants. And at the end, it said, I don't want to get off on a rant here, but, and did this thing. And at the end, I would say, of course, I could be wrong, but I doubt it. I put that on the end. So I created the whole uh, template for the rants. And then we were going to do a book together, the rants. But Dennis was impossible to work with, so I backed out of it. But he still did the book. Still did the book, yeah. I should have just hung in there. Cause I had, it was already signed deal. It was going to be the rants by Dennis Miller with Kevin Rooney's cook. The back, the back, the first, uh, the first issue of the rants book. On the back, there are some blurbs, you know, to sell the book. And all of those blurbs are directly out of my typewriter. But you know, Dennis was a very smart guy, and he did elevate the rants. He would add his stuff in and change words and do things and bring them in. And of course, the other writers uh, also were contributing. So, and there were some great writers on there: Rick Overton, Leah Krinsky, Ed Driscoll, 
bunch of guys, Eddie Feldman. So uh, the Rants book was not all mine, but the, the, the initial template was when we were in Vegas. When we read that in Vegas, Dennis went, oh, these are the, the Rants, say we got to do this. But when you stopped, when you backed out of the book, was it a thing where you didn't get credited properly? I heard a rumor once that possibly you or somebody else was so upset at Dennis that they slashed his tires. Oh, uh, this was the, the crew on the show. The Tribune show, the Dennis Miller show, the crew, uh, the last after the last show, they slashed the tires on his car, yeah. I don't know who it was, but somebody did, yeah. After the last show, because he, he was difficult to work with for the crew. Like the crew, the guy who, uh, Scott, his name was, who was the, he had held the cue cards, Every day, you would go into the dressing room with Dennis and run the cue cards. He would show them the cards and run through it every day. And then with the show, Scott would show him the cue cards during the show. So at the last show, he's like, hey, hey, cue card guy. He never did learn his name, you know? <laughs> hey, cue card guy. He was with him for six months. So he was kind of like, the, the, the crew was not a huge fan. So I think that's what happened. I heard that later, that the crew after the last episode had slashed the tires on his car. <laughs> that was fun. That was a weird, you know, show business people, especially the, the stars are so, it's an odd group. We were at that, that, that place and we were right next to, uh, I think it was the dating game. And Chuck Woolery, remember Chuck Woolery? Of course. Chuck Woolery was the host. So one day I go out into the trash bin to do something. I see the cue cards from the dating game in there. And one of the cue cards was, and this is what I love this, one of the cue cards was, in big letters, hello, my name is Chuck Woolery. <laughs> said, you need a cue card? Hello, my name is Chuck Woolery. <laughs> your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Well, let's see, my biggest disappointment was that I did not get an HBO special and have a chance to really uh, maybe get to theaters, you know, where I could do a, uh, be, have a draw and get a little bit more, it'll get better known and um, just become a stand-up comic. But I, I put, like I said earlier, I pushed that aside pretty quickly. I wasn't a, wasn't a, wasn't a lifelong dream of mine or anything like that. So. When that didn't happen, I was disappointed, but I wasn't crushed by it. And I was, uh, I guess the other disappointment is I wrote a couple of pilots that didn't get on the air, you know, that got made, but didn't get a uh, chance to uh, see the light of day. One with John Caponera that I kind of liked, and I wish that it had gotten a chance to be on the air. That was the, that year, like you were talking earlier about with the network executives all sit together and watch the shows and pick the shows. That show tested well with audiences, but they didn't pick it. They picked instead the single guy and... With Jonathan Silverman. Yeah, and Union Square and Carolina in the City and some other some other show, shows that all failed. And I thought, shit, I would have liked to get a chance to have that pilot on the air, you know, because now I can pretend that if it had got in the air, it would have been great, but... Right. Uh, you know, you never know. You, you like to think, well, if, I only, if only the world could see my genius... Soon they won't be laughing at me. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a remote area, in a room in a barn somewhere, right, right. where his father lost all the savings, right. and who has like the dollar and a dream to go for their goal? 
Yeah. And how do they get to have the kind of career, not only as a stand-up comedian, but as a writer in talk and sitcoms? Well, you might as well try. <laughs> you have no idea if it's going to work. It is that cliche of just keep doing it and uh, whatever it is that you enjoy, do it. just do, do what you enjoy. I guess I did what I like to do, hang around, talk to people, and get a few laughs, and I did not do what I didn't want to do. So I just refused and found some way to make ends meet without doing what I didn't want to do. And if you uh, are unhappy with where you're at, just do something else and keep pushing at it. The door will open. I thought show business felt like you're on the outside of a big room, and you walk around the outside and keep pushing and keep pushing, and somewhere there'll be a door that'll pop open. And when the door does pop open, go in, and then don't lean on the wall. Go in and stay away from the walls because the door will open and pop you out. So when, when, the, when the magic door opens, go in, keep moving forward, and just keep taking work, any work that, any work that, that you can, take it, stay in the room, and just keep keep going forward keep taking the jobs and don't get uh, comfortable and lean on the wall it'll, it'll fall out i don't really know i don't really know how i got here but i was nice to get here i look around here and i think this is a like john like ron was saying earlier this is the uh, holy shit moment ago i'm up here in this house and uh i always wanted to have a sports car and i do always wanted to marry a beautiful woman and i did I got my little dogs, got great friends, funny friends, got some shrubbery. <laughs> and a glass of water. And it's been good seeing you again, Barry. You're not pushing that Ferrari around anymore. <laughs> I no, met, met Barry, and every time I see Barry, he was pushing the Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> pushing it into a parking place in front of the improv or pushing it out of a parking place in front of the improv. <laughs> hey, Barry, nice Ferrari. It was, like, it was about as useful to him as a charm on a bracelet. <laughs> what are you taking? What are you, what are you driving to today, Barry? I'm driving the little pig on my bracelet. <laughs> Kevin, this has been really amazing. Thank you so much for taking so much time. It's great seeing you, and you are you always too. somebody who... Always were good to me, and I really appreciate it. I have so much Thanks, respect Barry. for you. Thank well, you. It's great to see you, and I'm glad, I'm glad you feel that way. Thank you. You're in the minority. <laughs> <laughs> Doubtful. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same Fortune and pain.
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.